Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good start to your week so far, and what I really find hard to believe is that this week, or let alone the start of today, marks the last full week of March. It has been quite a month, to say the least, especially for those of you who are loyal uh, March Madness fans when it comes to the NCAA tournament. I can say for all of us, or a good many of us, rather, I should say, this was just not a good year in terms of um, selecting teams that we knew probably had a very strong likelihood of going to the big dance in terms of the final, well, not just to the big dance for the tournament, but all the way to the final four. But I must say at the same time that I couldn't be any happier for the three schools, for the three for three out of the four schools whom are going to the Final Four, knowing that this is the first time they've ever made it this far in their program's history. Florida Atlantic, San Diego State, the University of Miami. Yes, Connecticut's been to the Final Four. Yes, Connecticut's won some national titles. But to think three out of four teams participating in the Final Four have never been before, to me that is a great uh, first, something that should not be taken for granted. And... You know, I, I just couldn't be any happier for those schools. Uh, to me, what I think would even be more of a surprise is if the, is if it came down to it in the national championship game, if it was Florida Atlantic playing uh, the University of Miami, two Florida schools in the national playing for the national title. Uh, to me, that would just be uh, unique. Um, you know, I was um, I learned um, online today. Like so many of you uh, living in America and those of you elsewhere around the world, we learned once again that sadly another shooting took place at a uh, private school um, in Nashville, Tennessee. It doesn't make a difference whether it's a public school or a private school. It, it's terrible that these uh, shootings take place. Why do we um, have to go after innocent children, innocent um Adults, teachers, whom are you know making, trying to make a difference in the lives of the students they teach, it it just makes no sense. And sadly, in, in the world that we live in today, shootings, or let alone I should say massacres, are a norm. But if we if we go backwards to two hundred fifty two hundred fifty three years ago on March the fifth, seventeen seventy. Based upon what we learned from our previous podcast um, segment episode, British troops fired into a crowd. Yes, they fired into a crowd. The crowd, on the other hand, was they weren't they weren't what the book textbooks may have told us from years ago, where we wanted to believe that it was just an innocent uh, group of people who were um, assembling and uh, protesting peacefully. But yet, this um, unruly crowd or raucous crowd did, in fact, uh, hurl objects at uh, British um, troops, most notably um, a guard on duty by the name of Private Hugh White. Did the British troops want to fire at the soldiers? No. Did their commander tell them to fire? No. But when uh, Private um, Hugh Montgomery got knocked to the ground, it's probably fair to say that he had he had pretty much taken all he wanted to take in terms of uh, not just the verbal abuse from the protesters, but the physical abuse in terms of the hurling of objects. And of course, it didn't make it right that an innkeeper 
um, felt it was appropriate to also assault uh, Hugh um, Montgomery. So what do we know? Um, the more objects that got thrown obviously led to the um, firing of um, firing by the troops without their or without their uh, commander's uh, order, formal order into the crowd, where um, three individuals died immediately. One died the next uh, morning afterwards, and then another fellow died two weeks later. So in today's time, and even there was no such thing as uh, 253 years ago as a, a massacre occurring, but sadly it happened on March 5th, 1770. But in today's modern day world, when a massacre occurs, it has to involve anywhere from five or say six or more people. So sadly, massacres have become a, an unfortunate norm um, in not only in today's uh, society in America, but in other parts uh, throughout the world. It's an unfortunate norm. I don't know if it's one of those norms that, is, that, are, that can um, be gotten rid of, and I'm not trying to get political here, folks, but sadly, these are the realities that we are living in, or and sadly, these are uh, unfortunate times that we are living in. You know, we shouldn't live our lives in fear, but we have to constantly be vigilant of our surroundings. And uh, I can also um, say that um, a former school teacher of mine, whom I've uh, still kept in touch with for a number of years, uh, whom I have a lot of respect for, I remember her telling me one time, um, not long after I'd left elementary school, she had basically told me, she said, you know, Kirk, it wasn't that long after you left elementary school where I began to see um, students engage in behaviors that were very unbecoming where they were not helping each other get off the ground. Instead, they were actually encouraging other peers of theirs to remain on the ground. And by doing so, they were um, going as far as kicking the classmate, hurling obscenities, even taking a rock in some instances. And this teacher of mine said, I began to, find, began to now wonder if this was the new norm that that uh, we were going to be exposed to going forward, not just at this present time, but for future generations. And and uh, that former teacher of mine is uh, absolutely 100% right on it. And, uh, you know, the sad part is, yes, there are a lot of uh, people out there who are law. The irony to it, rather, I should say, is that there are a lot, a lot of law-abiding people out there who are doing good things in this world. But sadly... Once again, we witnessed another massacre today, and uh, sadly, massacres are a norm. But 253 years ago, when the Boston Massacre happened, it was something that had just never, ever happened before in America, but it did happen. So where we're going forward now in this uh, podcast segment to the Boston Massacre of Family History, uh, we've got to learn... Um, whether or not uh, Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, whom is the acting governor, we've got to find out if he was able to successfully restore order. We also need to find out what kind of solutions are going to be able to get reached as to getting the troops out of the heart of Boston. We also have to find out um, what kind of um, legal proceedings will take place. In other words, witnesses who... Um, who were present on the night of March 5th, 
or uh, witnesses whom encountered uh, British troops boasting of um, of troubles that would lie ahead. In other words, were there? Um, I mean, I think it's fair to say we already know that there was uh, some uh, conflict that led up to um, March fifth. After all, we did have an unfortunate incident that occurred on February 22nd, 11 days earlier, when uh, customs official Ebenezer Richardson took matters into his own hands by firing um, swan shot into the angry crowd of protesters, only to tragically kill an, you know, an 11-year-old boy, yes, who uh, was part of that um, unruly crowd, but still the fact that an 11-year-old died did not make it right. So we have to uh, figure out how many depositions were filed and whether or not those depositions will get sent to England. So we've got some ground to cover. So here we go, folks, with our first leadoff question. In the aftermath of the shooting, did Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson successfully restore order? No. However, folks, let's keep in mind here. Uh, let's keep in mind of this. Not all fingers could be pointed directly at Lieutenant Governor Thomas Hutchinson, or I should say, um, let's, let's just say Acting Governor Thomas Hutchinson. So we can't point all the fingers at him. Now, British officers made every good faith effort, or I should say attempt, to um, preserve order by keeping all troops away from the crime scene, crime scene, or let alone just out in public. So we ha we must keep in mind that, okay, yes, we had about six troops who did fire into the crowd of uh, unruly um, people or unruly um, protesters, but we also should keep in mind that just because those six soldiers were a part of the 29th Regiment, it, didn't, it, it doesn't mean that uh, not everyone of the greater regiment was out there that night partaking in the events that happened uh, or, or, or in the event that happened on uh, King Street. Although officers did have success in keeping those soldiers already stationed within their barracks by not um, having them leave, so we can say that, uh, that, that officers did have success in keeping those soldiers whom were already stationed at the barracks from not going out into um, into maybe what we might say some uncharted territory. I mean, yes, they were already familiar with the town given that they've been there for, what, almost three years? But the bottom line is that if more troops make their way onto King Street, it's going to create even a, a larger scene. It's bad enough that six soldiers fire into the crowd, but let's say we've got another 15 there. We would have been looking at uh, more deaths, folks. I mean, five alone is bad enough, but I can't imagine uh, how much more the number would have uh, gotten to if we had had, say, 15 troops firing into the crowd. So, yes, we can say that officers did have success in keeping those soldiers already stationed within their uh, barracks to not leave. However, at the same time, there were officers whom had little, or I should say, no control over soldiers residing in private homes. 
So here's the double-edged sword, folks. Not all soldiers were confined to their barracks. We had soldiers that were already living in uh, private homes, and not just in private homes, but perhaps uh, homes where they were getting acquainted with um, with Boston, let's say, with uh, Bostonian women, for example, with the potential of maybe wanting to make a new life. So once you have soldiers residing in private homes, it does become hard for those officers to be able to control their movements, knowing that those whom are residing in private homes do have uh, do have a likelihood of not only leaving the the house that they're stationed at, but also by partaking in this um, event without their um, commanding officer's um, approval. Say, for example, if you're not in the 29th Regiment, but you're in the 14th Regiment and you want to go over and partake in this event with Captain Preston of the 29th, he's going to turn you away because uh, he doesn't, you know, he's already got enough on his hands knowing, I mean, blood's already been shed, folks, but do you think he wants to have any more blood shed on his hands if he's got troops from the 14th Regiment partaking in an event that uh, Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple did not approve of? So much did not approve of, but did not, did not approve that the soldiers uh, be participating in the event. So it's it's a lot. Um, it, obviously, there's a lot at stake here, folks. So yes, uh, we could say that yes, officers did have some success in keeping those soldier, soldiers already stationed within their barracks, but unfortunately, they had little to no control over soldiers residing in private homes. Some Bostonians stated that armed troops were going about navigating the streets in large numbers, looking for additional innocent, or I should say harmless townspeople to harass. I don't know how um, true those um, claims or allegations could be, but it might be fair to say that, that perhaps there were uh, troops that went about navigating the streets in large numbers, looking for additional uh, townspeople to harass. After all, there were some uh, British soldiers, most notably a private in uh, Hugh Montgomery, who was one of those six soldiers that fired into the crowd. Uh, Hugh Montgomery had um, proclaimed either a day before or just a few hours before the uh, confrontation on King Street, where he told um, locals that there would be blood shed on this night. So in other words, Hugh, Hugh Montgomery was not looking for any kind of reconciliation. For him, it was all about seeking payback. When people take matters into their own hands, just about anything can happen, for better or for worse. Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson stood from uh, the townhouse balcony, trying in vain to calm the hostile crowd by advising the masses that a full investigation or inquiry would get conducted per the events leading up to and on March 5th, 1770. Many were satisfied by the response that Acting Governor Thomas Hutchinson gave. At around 3 a.m. on March 6th, 1770, Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson ordered Captain Preston to be sent to jail. A few hours later, Soldiers under Preston's command, whom fired into the crowd, joined their commanding 
joined their commander in jail, including guardsman Private Hugh White, whom was the first to be harassed by the unruly crowd. Hugh White was also the first to be um, heckled with objects. He was also the first to notify Captain Thomas Preston of the unruly behavior by this uh, mob, whose numbers would grow over, over a short period of time, which it did. started out at 50, then ultimately between 300 and 400 people. Once the accused were placed in jail, or I should say behind bars, the crowd abandoned, or I should say dispersed. Further escalation of the crisis was halted. While some relationships between townspeople and soldiers stayed afloat, meaning nothing had changed, other relations amongst both parties had begun to decline. We take a person's name of um, Ephraim Fenno. He was a local Bostonian. He conversed with a doctor uh, from the 14th Regiment, only for the doctor to say he wished more Bostonians had died on the evening of March 5th, 1770. A classic example right here of where maybe even those whom don't like the fact that the unruly crowd harassed the soldiers, here's where maybe the opposing side maybe shouldn't have, where an individual on the opposing side perhaps shouldn't have said everything on it, on his mind. Yes, it's one thing to have not liked the fact that that unruly crowds people heckled objects at troops, but to, only to come back and say, I wish more Bostonians had died on the evening of March 5th, 1770. Yeah, that's taking things a little to the extreme. But this conversation, though, folks, happened a few days after March 5th but yet was similar to those conversations that occurred prior to and on the night of March 5th, where interactions amongst both parties weren't 100% stable, but even at 50%, the peace alone wasn't fully intact. So yes, you could have 50% peace, folks, but even that is fragile onto itself, and all it would take is just one incident to where there might be either no peace at all, or well below the 50% threshold of peace. Let's get into some uh, unique terminology right here. Uh, what is the uh, official duty of a town crier? I know most of you have probably never heard that before. As a matter of fact, I did not know about what a town crier did until having read this book. So I'll tell you all right here. A town crier is an officer who makes public announcements within a court of justice. So the early morning of March 6th, 1770, saw Boston's town crier, or officer I should say, go along every street throughout the town advising a special town meeting taking place at 11 a.m. the same day. So this is like modern day breaking news, folks. Instant news flash. Hey, at 11 a.m., the town meeting is taking place. We encourage all of you to come and attend and get your voice out, especially in the wake of what um, tragically happened the night before on March the 5th. The meeting itself was open to all of Boston's uh, townspeople. And what was very unique about this is that it's one thing for Boston to hold uh, town meetings 
but up until March 5th, 1770, town meetings weren't open for everyone. But given the circumstances that have just um, occurred, changes are being made. Could it be that more people who come out to um, talk about what happened on March 5th, the more people who come to talk about what happened on March 5th, that will um, lead to, I'm beginning to wonder if that will lead towards gathering uh, more depositions that could build a strong case against the troops whom fired into the crowd. So here we go. Boss, the meeting was the meeting itself was open to all of Boston's townspeople, including those whom weren't eligible to vote. First order of business centered upon all Bostonians willing to come forward with information from the previous night of March 5th. Multiple witnesses provided William Cooper, Boston's town, Boston's town clerk, with vital information via depositions. And I know most of you know what, what depositions are, especially if you are lawyers. You know, depositions aren't anything new. Depositions have been around probably since the beginning of time. I mean, we I think it'd be fair to say that depositions were written out 300-some years ago. All right, well, um, for those of you who aren't familiar with depositions, I'll tell you right here. A deposition, or I should say depositions, are um, formal statements or I should say formal written statements, where people have promised to tell the truth so that their statements can be used in a court of law. So in other words, it's like taking an oath, saying that what you have written is legit, it is valid, and that you promise that what you have written is, is, is the full truth, and that if, if it turns out to be fake and all that, that is to be a lie, that you um, will be prepared to face uh, punishment. So in other words, it's one thing to, um, to write something, but if it comes back where what you had written was uh, false, then not only have you uh, harmed yourself or embarrassed yourself, you've also embarrassed your community. So it was better, so you, if you're going to partake in... Um, writing a deposition, then please tell the truth. Don't waste the community's time, and most important of all, don't embarrass yourself or that of the greater community. So depositions, yes, are formal statements where people have promised to tell the truth so that their statements can be used in a courtroom of law. Nearly a hundred depositions, folks, were provided to a three-member committee appointed by Mr. Cooper. Nearly 100 depositions, folks. That's a lot. And it also goes to show you that many people aren't afraid to sit back. They want to get their voices heard. They want to be able to tell uh, a story that, that they can relate to. They want to be able to say that, hey, we have had enough of, we've had enough presence of British, of British troops patrolling our town. Those whom are very anti um anti-troop uh, presence uh, people. Besides uh, the townspeople providing their depositions, what other issue garnered uh, top priority? 
How about the removal of troops from Boston streets? Just before the massacre, or I should say shooting, elected officials within the council chamber asked Thomas, asked Thomas Hutchinson to request troop withdrawal from public square. Hutchinson refused to issue the order. Why did he refuse to issue the order? Well, first off, he asked Lieutenant Colonel Carr, the 29th, a 29th Regiment commander, to issue a troop evacuation order. Hutchinson's defense centered upon the fact he was a civilian officer, meaning he was never given any valid authority to issue direct military orders. In other words, General Thomas Gage never gave um, Acting Governor Thomas Hutchinson the power, or let alone the authority, to remove um, what was left of the uh, presence of troops in the town of Boston. Town meeting uh, nominated a committee of 15 um, prominent um, Bostonians whom were uh, dedicated to the liberty movement. You have most notably John Hancock, whom is uh, considered not only to be one of Boston's most wealthiest uh, merchants, but he's probably considered to be one of America's uh, richest men. As a matter of fact, folks, he became a millionaire before he, before he even reached the age of 30. John Hancock's uh, father died when he was young, and he was apprenticed uh, to his uncle, being that of uh, Thomas Hancock. And John Hancock lived with his uncle uh, Thomas for, um, for quite some time. Matter of fact, John Hancock was even greeted. He even was introduced to uh, British um, officials um, well before the French and Indian War began and around the time that the Seven Years' War began. Of course, that was also a time when relations were actually very good amongst the colonies and the crown. But when uh, John Hancock's uncle died around 1763, 1764, he died unexpectedly. And John, Mr. John Hancock himself inherited his uncle's fortune, which was worth millions of dollars, making Mr. John Hancock the richest um, individual in North America under the age of 30. So even by this time, folks, he is still a successful merchant. He hasn't blown his fortune. He is a good, uh, he is a good, um, he's as good of a steward with his money as he, as he ought to be. Other uh, prominent uh, committee members whom uh, were obviously dedicated to the Liberty Movement, just to name a few, uh, Mr. Samuel Adams. Uh, this one, I didn't know, his name was Joshua Henshaw. These are just a handful of the many um, dedicated um, members whom are um, whose uh, focus um, is uh, fully dedicated to the Greater Liberty Movement. These men had a, a mission in mind, and that was to tell Acting Governor Thomas Hutchinson that the troops must leave at once. You know, you could probably tell someone all you want until you're blue in the face that, you know, troops need to leave. But the bigger question is, will someone like acting governor Thomas Hutchinson budge and go along?
The Committee of Fifteen went as far as warning Hutchinson that people within Boston, including the outlying towns, were willing to riot if troops weren't withdrawn. Wow. So we've just had a massacre, folks, that occurred on March 5th. We had a, an 11-year-old boy get shot and died that on the same day, on uh, February 22nd of 1770. And now all of a sudden the Committee of Fifteen is going as far as warning Thomas Hutchinson that people within Boston, including the uh, outlying towns, are willing to go as far as... Um, as riot, or is willing to go as far as engaging in acts of rioting if the troops aren't uh, withdrawn by a reasonable time frame. Now, if Thomas uh, Hutchinson is refusing to budge, is it fair to say that that whatever relations he has with army officers at this precise moment? Do you all think that um, his relations with army officers are smooth? Knowing that one of them is already in jail, uh, being that of Captain Thomas Preston. Believe it or not, folks, uh, army all some army officers might have been in complete unison with Hutchinson, but a majority of them weren't. And another word for unison, folks, is uh, agreement. So it would be fair to say that there are a handful of army officers that are, were not in complete unison with uh, Thomas Hutchinson. How about uh, Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple? He's not in complete unison with Hutchinson. Matter of fact, he proposed he, he submitted a proposal to Acting Governor uh, Hutchinson by sending the 29th Regiment afoot to Castle Island, along with keeping the 14th Regiment, uh, being the unit he commanded confined to buildings at Wheelwright's Wharf. This is a bold step here. I, as a matter of fact, I applaud uh, what Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple did. He's trying to modify a situation here, folks. He's trying to prevent further violence from happening amongst the townspeople and the soldiers so that no other casualties or loss of life is going to happen, not just so much at uh, civilians, but maybe the troops. And it is fair to say that even for Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple, um, Captain Thomas Preston's feeling the same way too. They're all relieved that no British soldiers lost their lives, given the fact that Private uh, Hugh Montgomery was attacked, um, given that a bystander did attack uh, Private Montgomery, not so much by knocking him down to the ground, but when he, after he fired, um, a bystander did um, attack him and... Um, and, and uh, hit him on the shoulder with an object. So that may have been the closest thing that, that uh, could have resulted in perhaps a British uh, troop fatality. So after many hours of going back and forth, both sides did reach a solution, a solution that did uh, result in a compromise where... Um, both regiments, the 29th and the 14th, departed the town of Boston for good. Despite some hesitancies on the part of Dalrymple and Hutchinson shortly after the shooting, this probably was not what um, either man wanted. I think it'd be fair to say that 
Interim Governor Thomas Hutchinson did not want this to happen 100%. For Lieutenant Colonel William Dalrymple, he may not have been completely gung-ho on this, but he probably knew that this was that this proposal that he had um, that he came up with and issued to Governor Hutchinson, it was the best that could be done given the circumstances that were uh, at stake. Had the troops not been withdrawn, folks, then yes, we would have seen more uh, riotous activity. How about uh, we go to talking about newspapers? Well, think about it, folks. The newspapers are going to eventually um, want to publish um, headlines about what happened on March 5th, right? I mean, we don't have televisions. We don't have radios. You know, we don't have cell phones, folks, so there's no way of, of getting instant breaking news app alert. But when the newspapers go about publishing this event, it is going to be breaking news, not just for those who live on the outskirts of Boston, like 50, 70 miles. Think about um, people in New Hampshire. Think about people at, uh, going southward and as far south as Virginia, 400 miles away, and all the way down to Georgia. This is going to be breaking news when they finally read about it. So were newspapers being published in the days after the March 5th shooting? The answer is yes. Newspapers in general had printed out various accounts, or let alone, I should say, reports behind what transpired on March the 5th. How about the Boston Gazette? Now, I should point out, folks, that in 1770, Boston, the town of Boston has more than one newspaper uh, you can get your news on. There's nothing wrong with having a little competition, I guess, but uh, the Boston Gazette reported that Captain Preston um, having ordered the soldiers to fire into the crowd. So the, the Boston Gazette has reported that Captain Preston did um, order the soldiers to fire into the crowd, whereas the Boston Chronicle went further by referring to the incident in quotations, unfortunate affair. While newspapers published their findings, Per eyewitness reports, a fellow by the name of uh, Henry Pelham, didn't we talk about him in the uh, prologue to this uh, book, book topic uh, series, folks? Yes, we sure did. Now he's reemerging again. Artist Henry Pelham was at work where he went about drawing up an event just days after take, just after the event itself took place. I still wondered to this day if Henry Pelham had not given his work of art to Paul Revere. Henry Pelham would have gotten all this fame. Yes, Paul Revere might have done something on his end, but what would he have not had? He wouldn't have had something else to have go off. He wouldn't have had something else he could have gone off of. Yes, Henry Pelham and Paul Revere probably were friends, but sometimes even friends can do things to each other that don't always have um, happy endings. So it could be fair to say that even back in 18th century times, be careful whom you could trust and be careful with whom you couldn't trust. So is it fair to say that 
issues of trust in 18th century were um, were pressing sensitive uh, matters just like they are today? Absolutely. Here's another question. Uh, had many Bostonians been impacted by the deaths from March 5th, 1770? Well, 99.9% .9 of us would probably say yes. So the answer is yes. How about um, mer if we take uh, Merchant John Rowe, and the reason I mentioned Merchant John Rowe is because he joined the greater procession for those whom already died come March the 8th, where people, or let alone I should say mourners, marched in rows of six. Merchant John Rowe became convinced that nearly ten to 12,000 people out of 16,000, which represented the total number of Boston's population, were in attendance. So think about it, folks, about ten to 12,000 people in attendance. That's, that's sending a statement right there that it would be fair to say that uh, the ten, this mass population who's coming out in attendance, it's very fair to say that so many of those people either knew the five um, men whom died, you know, being Samuel Gray, Samuel Maverick, um, Crispus Attucks, Patrick Carr, and um, I apologize if I um, I apologize if I can't remember the other person's name off the top of my head at the moment. I, I do, um, matter of fact, that maybe I'll try to uh, get that one for you here in a moment. I do apologize, but. Uh, but what, but what it does go to show is that so many people are impacted by this because um, they probably know that it could have been um, one of them. As a matter of fact, folks, it was uh, Mr. Uh, John uh, Carroll. Okay, Mr. Uh, uh, John uh, Carroll, who um, who passed away. Well, actually, I take it back. John Carroll was one of the uh, troops that fired into the crowd. Uh, but anyways... Uh, those five uh, people who um, who died, it impacts um, everybody, everybody present. Um, it, it impacts um, people from all uh, ages. If I was one of those um, thousands of mourners there, I would be feeling um, the impacts. Yes, there are going to be those who will say, well, you know, the... Um, those people who hurled objects into the crowd, they should have known what they would have gotten themselves into. They, they were asking for trouble. On one hand, maybe we could say that they did. But did it have to come to this? Well, you know, eventually we're going to find out in another podcast segment episode, folks, that uh, we will find out the big question that has to be resolved. But in the meantime, um, what I do know is that um, that not everybody who was um, present at this uh, procession was necessarily necessarily from Boston. Uh, nearby towns, people from neighboring, or I should say, nearby towns, were um, present in attending this um, 
procession, most notably from um, such towns as like Roxbury and Charlestown, where it just so happened that church bells from those uh, towns um, partook in the ringings per the somber event. So everybody, in a sense, can tell a story of where they were on the night of March 5th, even if they weren't present on King Street. I do know that John Adams was at home, was at his home uh, on the night of March 5th, and he heard um, the bells ringing. And he found it to be very unusual that the bells were ringing on multiple occasions. He knew that there were reasons why the bells rang, but when he arrived to the scene, he knew that this was not, um, that this was something just very, uh, very unordinary. And when he saw the carnage, he knew that, um, that what he had seen was just something that was entirely out of the norm. But then again, if I, um, awoke from my house, whether I was asleep or or in my study, and I'm hearing the bells ringing nonstop, I think I probably would want to get up and know what's going on. Of course, I can't, you know, we don't have telephones. I can't call up and say, hey, what's going on uh, there, Mr. Jones? I've got to go outside my home and probably walk a couple of blocks to find out what, what truly, in fact, is going on. And what do you know? Behold my eyes. I see carnage like I've never seen before. Most people would have seen carnage from a war back then, but not on but not on a single street where people lay dead, people lay wounded, people lay hurt, emotionally scarred. It's a whole uh, it's a whole new ball game now, folks, a whole new norm. Uh, March 11th, uh, 1770, the first Sunday after the shooting. Okay, first Sunday after the shooting. So what does that tell us right there, folks, that March 5th was on a Monday? We hadn't even made it to just a full week yet. We were shy of it. So March 11th, 1770, the first Sunday after the shooting, Reverend John Lathrop from the Second Congregational Church assailed the troops for the sermon he shared with his congregation. The congregation was so moved by Lathrop's sermon that they sent his speech into print format 3,000 miles across the ocean where it was printed in London under the title of Innocent Blood Crying to God from the Streets of Boston. That tells you something right there about how people can mobilize and get the word out on something in 18th century times. That, that ought to tell us right there that people weren't afraid to take a stand. Did the Boston town meeting resume the practice of taking depositions, or I should say formal statements from witnesses to the shooting after the funeral procession took place? Yes. However, um, a new uh, format's coming into place. It's, it's not uh, a radical change, but it's a new committee of three that got established, whom not only were powerful men, but they were well-connected to being very active members within the Sons of Liberty. We have such men like James Bowden, 
Joseph Warren, whom was one of Boston's most uh, prominent doctors, and Samuel Pemberton. And what I should point out real quick about uh, Dr. Joseph Warren, and I, I've, I know I've mentioned this before, but let's be reminded of this. Prior to March 5th, 1770, and I should say prior to February 22nd of that year, Dr. Warren was catering to both, um, he was catering not only to townspeople, but also to loyalists. Well, we haven't gotten that phrase yet, but I should say to British uh, troops and their families. He was catering to both sides. The British had a lot of respect for this guy. Matter of fact, the British had more respect for Dr. Joseph Warren than they did for Samuel Adams. And the reason for that was because Dr. Warren had successfully established himself in the profession he was in. Samuel Adams was a failed businessman. He, um, let's just say being a businessman was not his occupation. The reason why his um, name, his uh, picture is still on those Sam Adams beer bottles is because of his penmanship. He was an excellent writer, and because of his excellent writing skills, that's how he made up for not being a successful businessman. But when 11-year-old uh, Christopher Sidair is shot and dies, that's when Dr. Warren's uh, views change. They just don't change because of what happened to Christopher. Well, a lot of it does. For one, uh, Dr. Warren is very um, traumatized like countless others over uh, Christopher Sidair's death. But the death of this 11-year-old did galvanized Dr. Warren to where um, he pretty much knew what side of the conflict he wanted to be on, and over time he pretty much uh, shut his business or shunned his business from all people associated with the crown. Talk about severing ties right there. But anyways, yes, doc, Dr. Joseph Warren and uh, Samuel Pemberton and James Bowden became the new, um, became this new three-man committee. And the new three-man committee's task was to gather or assemble all statements into a written account which would get sent to supporters in London. The written account's purpose sought to record a connected series of events from aggressive soldiers, innocent townspeople, including a clear division between both parties. Bowden, Warren, and Pemberton agreed to publish formal statements under a broad title called the following, folks, A Short Narrative of the Horrid, not horrible, folks, but Horrid, H-O-R-R-I-D, A Short Narrative of the Horrid Massacre in Boston, perpetrated in the evening of the 5th day of March, 1770, by soldiers of the 29th Regiment, but 29th is not spelled 29th, folks, it's in Roman numeral, XXIX, which XXIX in Roman numerals is 29. How many uh, copies do you all think got sent abroad to England? Less than 50, how about 40? So 40 was the total number of copies sent abroad to sympathetic members of Parliament, including the outgoing Prime Minister, being the Duke of Grafton. And, you know, we should be reminded, folks, that not everyone in Parliament is hostile towards the colonies. There are 
members of parliament whom are very sympathetic um, to the colonists. When I think of the think of members of in parliament who are very sympathetic to the colonists, there are two that come to my mind. John Wilkes and Isaac Barry. There is a town in Pennsylvania, just outside of Scranton, known as Wilkes Barry, Pennsylvania, named after those two fellows. How many depositions did the committee obtain, including the number of days it took altogether to collect them? 96 um, is the number, folks. That is the total number of depositions received. 19 is the total number of days per having, per having collected all depositions. That means, folks, roughly, on average, probably about five depositions, between five and six depositions would have needed to have been collected per each of those days to get to where, they, um, to where the three-man committee needed to have all the sufficient evidence, or not evidence, but sufficient proof as to what you know, really did unfold. Uh, once finished uh, providing testimony, each individual signed a written statement in front of two justices of the peace confirming that what they wrote was valid, or I should say legit. The three-man committee took depositions from people whose voices weren't usually heard. Well, in, in desperate times like these, or in um, awkward, or in um, unexpected times like these, in order to build your case, you're probably going to need to uh, tweak things to where people whom normally would not be allowed to speak in a town um, hall meeting are now going to be allowed to do so. So whom would have been welcomed, folks? White women, both married and single, and believe it or not, folks, black men, free and enslaved. All formal statements got arranged by the three-man committee in a thoroughly arranged order with the purpose of showing soldiers in the worst possible manner. The majority of depositions folks did not even focus on the evening of March 5th, but instead from days prior. So let's go back to March 2nd. You know that incident at the uh, rope maker shop where uh, the rope maker told the British soldier that he had a job for him because the British soldier was looking for some um, side work. And what did the rope maker tell him to do? That he could go clean out his latrine, meaning his outhouse. So March 2nd was the, was the fight at the rope walk. And and because of that fight at the rope at the uh, rope maker shop the soldiers um you know were were very angry they claimed to have expressed a desire for revenge other depositions focused on long-term hostilities between soldiers and townspeople whereas another set included allegations that soldiers knew ahead of time something big was going to occur come the evening of March 5th, 1770. Like I said earlier, Private Hugh Montgomery um, had told um, townspeople that there was going to be bloodshed on this night of March 5th, or that there would be bloodshed in a matter of a few days. The purpose, or I should say the greater effect behind all 96 depositions, was to establish an idea, 
or a mindset that British troops firing into a crowd of protesters fell under criteria considered to be premeditated. What is premeditated, folks? Committing, committing a heinous action or a heinous act, something that was planned out either months before the incident occurred or let alone maybe planned out a year ahead of time. But premeditated basically means that you have planned this out and that you intend to carry through with this act without any regard for life, no remorse. The bottom line is you've planned it out and you are willing to uh, deliberately inflict harm upon uh, a countless number of innocent civilians. The town meeting uh, was more concerned about the town of Boston. Why is the town meeting now uh, more concerned about the town of Boston? Well, I think this should I think we should be reminded here folks that while yes Boston does have a radical faction yes there are those whom have been easily persuaded to believe that they are living under a tyrant whom doesn't really seem to no longer care about those whom are governed from below and while those people are entitled to their own opinion what um what the committee is really concerned about is in order for things to um, to be conducted in the utmost modified uh, manner, the the town of Boston cannot display any kind of ought to not be displaying any kind of favoritism. Instead, there needs to be um, as much presence of impartiality as there is possible. So by engaging in impartiality, folks, what that is, what's that, what's that, what that is referring to is not favoring one side over the other. You know, when I think of impartiality, I think of um, of a courtroom. A judge, or let alone, I should say, um, a group of uh, judges, or in the case of the United States Supreme Court, not um, the Chief Justice and the eight uh, associate. Um, justices, they must show um, voir dire, meaning impartiality. They are not to favor one side over the other. So if there is going to be a um, court trial behind what happened on March 5th, 1770, there, there ought to not be any uh, form of impartiality or any type of impartiality whatsoever. Yes, you may, you may be entitled to your own um, opinion, but the bottom line is, is that even the facts alone can't, um, can't favor one side over the other. And that will be discussed in another podcast uh, episode somewhere here soon. But Bostonians want to be seen as uh, people whom are middle ground, fair, open-minded, they don't want the rest of uh, the rest of the colonies to see them as a bunch of radical extremists. Although it might be fair to say that there are some in Virginia, whom probably don't like what took place on March fifth, seventeen seventy. There could be um, gentry uh, men in Virginia, whom probably are already thinking to themselves, you know, those those uh, rabble rousers in Boston or in New England, 
Maybe they ought to just rot in hell for their actions. Maybe they got what they deserved for causing so much trouble to where the troops had no other choice but to fire into the crowd. And the only reason why I mention Virginia, folks, is because, you know, Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies. She has the most to gain, and but yet she has the most to lose. So for Virginia to go along right now in early 1770 with what is going on in Massachusetts could send a wrong message for the other uh, colonies whom really don't know what to think of what has happened in Massachusetts as of March 5th, 1770, given now that they are learning this just weeks later. But for many um, people throughout the other colonies, the thought of severing ties with England at this point in time is beyond ridiculous. It's crazy. Why would you want to sever ties with the mother country despite what a group of, despite what took place in Massachusetts? Some are probably already saying to themselves, you know what? If those people in Massachusetts want to secede and and sever ties with England, then let them do that. Let them form their own government. Let them be their own separate entity. And for many people right now, they would be saying, okay, if they want to sever ties with England, let them form their own government, and let's see if they'll be happy come a year later. And if they're not, guess who they might have to blame for it themselves. So I say all this, folks, because we need to be reminded of the fact that just because what happened on March 5th, 1770, as unfortunate as it is, not everyone uh, throughout the 13 colonies is in complete unison in other words, they're not all in, they don't all have sympathy over what has transpired in Boston. But over time, some things are going to change. But in the meantime, we have to figure out where are we going to go uh, from here. After all, I think it's very fair to say that this uh, new three-man committee has made some wonderful uh, steps. They are trying to do what they can to... Um, prove to the rest of the colonies that um, that Boston um, is trying to um, reimage itself and being a town that can prove to be impartial. Well, when I'm on the air again next, next time, folks, we're going to talk about how the British respond. Are they going to come up with a, um, with a version that will um, counteract with what the Americans have done, given that they have... Um, come up with a, um, a title uh, being a short narrative of the horrid massacre in Boston perpetrated in the evening of the fifth day of March 1770. We have to find out if the British have come up with their own version, and we also have to figure out how the British are going to um, assist those uh, families whom are still um, residing not only in uh, private homes, but also um, in the barracks. After all, they're going to have to go somewhere. And given, for all we know, a couple of those families have um, husbands whom probably are, uh, who probably still remain behind bars. So we still have some, we still have a little bit more ground to cover, folks, before a trial is going to take place. Well, we've covered a lot of ground, and thank you for your time as always, and uh, thank you for being such ardent listeners. Uh, without you guys, I'm not sure where I would be, um, but let's do keep in mind, folks, that 253 years ago, when this massacre did occur, it was something very unheard of, 
it was out of the norm. But sadly, in a world we live in today, massacre itself is a permanent norm. You know, we can't live our lives in fear, but we certainly need to be vigilant. But even on March 5th, 1770, loss of life happened. Thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air next time. Take care.